Welcome to the eGovernance Academy podcast to discover the future of governance. eGovernance Academy has assisted digital transformation globally in more than 130 countries. Our experts will share their insights and worldwide examples on how digital technology could benefit every society. Tune in for the Digital Government Podcast every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the podcast of Estonian e-governance academy. My name is Linnar Wick. I'm leading the smart governance program activities at e-governance academy. And with me today in the studio is Katrin Neumann Metcalf, senior expert on legal framework at the Estonian e-governance academy. And our topic today will be in a broader sense to look the legal obstacles to e-governance that actually don't exist. But uh, let's start, Katrin, with, uh, once again, the helicopter view. There are almost 5 billion people who are using on the planet Earth digital services via different digital means on a regular basis and daily basis. Out of those 5 billion legally binding digital identity and digital signature availability is limited maybe to maximum 100 million of those users. So the proportions, 5 billion people are desperately looking for the internet services on every day, and only a very small and tiny fraction of them are identifiable with a legal means and also have the ability to express uh, they're willing online. What has been the biggest obstacle of this type of situation where everybody's online, but nobody has really the identity? Mm, thank you. And thank you for the, the headline for this podcast, because I like very much this to say the legal obstacles that don't exist, because as we'll come back to as well, there really are many fewer such obstacles than what, what many people think. But you also started from the right end with the identity or the signature. And, and here um, we need to think a bit like lawyers, even those of us who aren't, even technical people need to try to think a bit like lawyers and to think what is a signature. A signature is very many different things. If I sign your birthday card, it's something completely different than if I buy your house. It's the same signature, actually, but it has very different values. Uh, and this is what needs to be um, uh, replicated in the digital world somehow. We need to be sure if it is necessary that we know who is doing something, we need to be sure this is actually that person. For this reason, in the offline world, quite often just the signature is not enough. We need witnesses or we need to go to a notary or we need to present ourselves with a photo ID or all sorts of things because the legal system is aware that there's a different value to certain transactions. So we need to think of how to make them more secure. Um, so when I say that also technical people need to think like lawyers, you need to sort of take a step back and think, so why is this identity so important? You alluded to it already. It is to show who you are in this new, different world. Not so new even anymore, but still different. Because traditionally, we, we know this. Most countries' legislation don't explain what a signature is or what it looks like. We just know that. 
Um, and that includes often that you have to be present somewhere and so on. This is different in the digital world. So that's why we need to explain this. So the law, it's, it's a good example of how law and technology should work together because it's for the tech people to create a secure way of identifying yourself. And it is for lawyers to, um, to point out when and where and why this is necessary so that it's clear that um, if I want to, um, to do certain things online, that I have a possibility of proving who I am and that this possibility is good enough even if this goes to court. Because as we all know, nobody likes lawyers until something goes wrong. And then everybody comes running. Uh, so this... Um, is we can say kind of the test of something is that if it goes to court, most things never go to court. They shouldn't. If, if it's a private transaction or a public transaction, if both sides or all sides are happy, that's it. So the test is in the sense that if something goes wrong or somebody claims that something was done wrongly, it's for the courts to determine that it was done properly or which side has the, the more right and we all know that it's rarely very clear. We wouldn't need courts if it was so that somebody's always right. So, so no, it's a question of interpretation and looking at all sorts of different factors. And it is in this mix we also need to see the digital identity. It needs to be secure enough to know that, yes, actually, even if there was no physical contact, nobody went anywhere, maybe we were sitting in opposite ends of the world, we had this possibility of legally communicating in a way that's good enough to know that, yes, I did indeed purchase this, this item or pay for this service, or I did indeed make this transaction. I did indeed vote in an election or something, whatever it is. Um, so that's, if, if to look at the sort of legal side of e-governance, that is really the, the one thing that can create an obstacle if you do not have a secure way of identifying yourself. Yet in the same time, the people and businesses especially have found the way how to conduct the transactions without really having anybody being identified with a legally binding means uh, secured and provided by the governments. And when we are looking to the, to the success of e-commerce worldwide, and when we're looking to the, to the different other transactions, and we need to agree that those people worldwide in every country, they conduct every day online more transactions than so-called offline world. And they do it in most cases when people don't even think based on which legislative space I'm doing it. I have accepted some sort of terms and conditions, and, uh, and that is it. It's, it's good for me that I am able to use that service. That brings me into the big, big question. Uh, those platforms which are conducting those transactions are they doing something illegal when accepting identities of their consumers of Kitty 243 or Boris Johnson 258? Or I can take any email identity and, and actually it doesn't stop 
me from being a legitimate from the Amazons or any other online shopping uh, uh, perspective to conduct uh, the transactions. This, um, as lawyers always say, it depends on exactly what you mean by the question, if it's illegal or not. But it's a very interesting question. And uh, there are a number of, of different points to make. So one, because it's true that it seems maybe surprising that so many people can use various e-services without having secure identities. Obviously, it would be better if more people had access to secure identities, but it's possible, as you say, anyway, the services go much faster than, than the actual question of, of building up these identities. Sometimes it's replaced by something else, like, for instance, the banks' systems or payment systems of credit cards and so, where they will have their own requirements to be sure that the person who's paying, uh, that that meets this uh, sort of criteria for knowing who is who. Um, we see more and more such different systems as well, where you have to approve through your internet bank, your credit card transactions or things like that which have been developed as there are more and more such transactions. So sometimes it's like this question of being sure who's who is sort of handed over to a different kind of platform, or so the banking platform. But um, can, uh, Katrin, can mm -hmm. government delegate the identification to a private company? Let me bring an example. Can I build up my national digital identity or online identity system based on the commercial bank uh, uh, online access system? Or then in that case, maybe I can make an agreement with uh, Facebook because mm -hmm. Facebook is also identifying people and many say that based on the data analytics, Facebook knows very well actually whether the person who has logged into a certain account really is that person based on the behavior of the person. So should uh, the quick solution for building up a worldwide digital identity network be that governments are delegating it just to private companies? It would be very unfortunate, I would say, for reasons that may not have anything to do with how practical it would be or anything like that. But as you said before, um, the way we identify ourselves for Facebook or something, it's not what could be regarded as being secure enough in the legal sense. Then, yes, maybe actually Facebook has more secure ways of knowing who is who and so, but um, it would be very strange to let a private company have that kind of power for all sorts of countries because even i mean we may not be too happy with our democratic systems but in democratic states at least theoretically we influence so we can influence who gets to make decisions we have no such way of influencing who makes decision in facebook and especially because facebook is working on the legislation of a different country which we especially can't do nothing about, uh, we can't really vote and change things on the legislative environment where Facebook is registered. No, exactly. And actually, I think in the, the moment we even have, I, I think I would trust Facebook more than I would trust the US government, actually, if I had to choose one or the other. So we even have these absurd situations, but that is because we... 
we, we may be lucky that some of these platform companies are actually taking things relatively seriously with privacy. And so I'm not saying at all they're making a perfect job. There's been lots of scandals, but at least they're entering into this discussion. They could just ignore it as well. We could have a, um, some other country, let's say a Russian big platform coming up and and caring absolutely not at all about human rights and privacy or anything like that and offering services that then would somehow replace uh, these, these sort of secure methods of government. So that would be a very bad idea. On the other hand, to go back to your question a bit, to develop together with banks some form of identity or together with some other private companies, that I would say is a good idea. And there we have our Estonian model uh, to look at. And this is what's called a public-private partnership, which does not mean that you delegate things to the private sector. It's uh, it's an existing sort of legal framework for, for closer cooperation with certain companies than just on a one-off basis. Uh, and as happened in Estonia... There was at the same time an interest from the banks that were private uh, and the government to create secure identification systems. So why not then work together? And that could work also in other countries because the interest is the same. The interest is knowing that the person who claims to be somebody is that person. So you could, I think you theoretically still can, but few people now use it, log in to public services in Estonia with a bank ID Gradually, we can say it's come full circle because now most people log into banking services with the public ID. Uh, and this is, this is fine. And this is, I think, a model that is um, worth looking at in many countries because if you have different sectors trying to solve the same problem, why not try to do it together? Uh, but it's still so that, um, as I said, we, we may like or dislike our governments more or less, but in a democratic system, that is where decisions should sort of emanate from governments and parliaments. And we don't have that kind of control over the private sector. So even if there would be a super secure way of identifying yourself via, say, Facebook or something like that, it still would leave open to these questions of, you know, which jurisdiction and, and what happens then if that changes and all of that. So so we, when it comes to identifying yourself, because it's such a core issue of the legal system, then that really needs to be clearly dealt with in legislation. And it cannot be any ambiguity that I use one form of, of identifying myself and you use another, and then we make some very important transaction that may be the validity of that transaction comes up in court 50 years later or something. I bought your house and, and then after 50 years, our, our heirs are, are disputing whether this was legal. They have to know who actually entered this transaction. So the conclusion of this discussion around the identity online is for me very clearly that governments have the responsibility. They have an urgent responsibility because in most of the countries, majority of the population is already online. So making sure that the people have also proper means of uh, acting who they really claim to be and having a digital identity which acts also as a protection for people online is a necessity and is a responsibility of the government. And the implementation of that is not necessarily 
to be built by police department or migration office or uh, any other individual government office, but that could be done in cooperation with the private sector who also has a high interest in secure and efficient means of digital identification. That could be the conclusion of the first part of our discussion. And that maybe now we can move to the headline of today's podcast, the legal obstacles for e-governance that really don't exist. Many governments who you have been advised and with whom e-governance academy has worked start often the conversation about the e-governance, but is it legal? There are so many buts around the e-governance and I too often find that legal obstacles serve sometimes as a good excuse for not doing and not delivering digital government. Do you have the same feeling? Absolutely. And I think um, there are a number of reasons for this. One is that it's something convenient to point to, uh, but also that it may be something which a lot of people do not understand. Um, a lot of lawyers don't really understand what e-governance is. Uh, and a lot of technical people or others who implement e-governance may not understand the legal framework. And lawyers are often brought in too little and too late in this process. Most legal work anywhere in the world consists of applying existing laws, whether you're working in an administration or whether you're a lawyer in court or something. You look at what laws are there, there now and then what does that mean? Of course, then you may find obstacles. But what we are doing when we work with different countries on e-governance is to encourage and support and discuss with them their reforms. So then if you're looking at what laws could look like, that's when I say there are no obstacles. Because then you need to look at, so is there anything in the law now that makes digital transactions impossible or difficult? And then you need to see what is it and what is it therefore like does it serve a purpose we talked at length about the identification that's very key so that you have to pay a special attention to but other requirements of form for instance what something looks like or when you need to go and do something they are often based on things which aren't valid anymore like in Estonia I can vote at two o'clock in the morning because I do it online. So it doesn't make sense to say that voting has to happen between 8 in the morning and 8 in the evening, for instance. And I can access public information via government websites 24 hours a day, every day, including also Saturday and Sunday, not only during office hours. Mm, exactly. And I think one of the best quotes I heard about our e-governance was from a, a young lady, an artist, actually somebody who doesn't work with anything related to e-governance when she explained it as a government that really works for the people because we don't have to go somewhere where they tell us at the time and place which suits the authorities, but they come to us. Uh, and this is the way it should be. But then as a lawyer, one needs to look at form requirements to sort of see whether there need to be some replication of this. So does this particular style of issuing a decision. For instance, in Austria, administrative decisions used to be on grey paper. So is there a point in that? It's an old rule from, from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. 
But if this indicates something, that say the gray paper decision is actually different than something else, then we need to, again, lawyers and tech people need to talk about it and say, so how do we make the gray paper decisions digitally? It doesn't mean to be gray, it doesn't need to be paper, but then maybe there needs to be a specific procedure for that or so. And I have seen similar case also for document management, where in some ministries there are blue files green files, yellow files, and red files, while red files are state security level files. And people need to think kind of how to carry those red files from point A to point B, how to register that movement of those documents, and they are not capable of transferring those blue, green, yellow, and red into a digital context at all. Mm. And that's a very good example because there there is a point in having the red file. It actually shows something. Um, so this needs to be thought about in the digital world. Probably it means that um, you should uh, limit access to certain types of data. That would be then this in this red files and so I, I'll give one ex, again Estonian based example um, our X road that I think listeners will have heard about in other contexts which is the name for the interoperability of databases very often I get the question uh, from the legal side then that isn't this really dangerous with providing huge access to information for everybody who gets an access to lots of private information and it's actually very easy but extremely important to explain that the question of who has access to what is a completely different question than who joins the X road because the joining, being able to be in this system, it's mainly a technical question. But then the question of what can you do with that tool is a completely different question. And I would say often you don't need to change the law at all because of this, because in the law there will be different levels of sort of state secrets, there will be different reasons for having access to personal data, there will be all sorts of different rules in all kinds of different laws about why, on which purpose, um, on which grounds, for which purpose do you have access to certain information. Those rules can stay the same. It's just the physical access that changes. And these are two different questions. So it's not as if because we're doing things now in a, in a digital format with more use of technology, we're necessarily doing something different. We're doing something in a different manner. Katrin, what would be your advice on how to conduct the kind of legal framework analysis in a country A, B, or C, if the government wants to know what legal obstacles are there, which of those legal obstacles don't exist at all, and what are those rules of law, legislative changes, we need really to make sure will take place? What is needed is to involve people with uh, legal training to sit down and look through laws and discuss obviously with their colleagues because usually you don't know the laws of all areas and to like vacuum through your legislation to find anything that looks like it's not possible in the digital world. So this can be something that talks about what papers look like. This can be something that talks about what people 
behave like, or like say, physical raise location your, also. Absolutely, raising your right hand, for instance, and uh, uh, coming at a certain hour somewhere or so. Find all those things, basically highlight them, and then look at what are they there for. And that is really what you need to do. And it's actually. Sometimes I get the feeling people get almost disappointed that it seems so simple because they think legal framework of e-governance is some huge technical wonderful thing, almost like some kind of a robot going around and doing things. So, and actually, no, it's a, it's good old legal work and sitting looking at the texts, and when you found all those things, see what you can do about it. And quite often. Uh, the issues that may remain are horizontal, so they're not. You don't need to change lots of legislation. You need to have a law on digital identity. You need to have a statement in a law or a specific law that, for instance, says where there's mention of document. This could also be in digital format or something. So you just need to sort of address those things. And then in some countries, because legal systems do vary, there may be special things. That may mean that um, some transactions shouldn't be done digitally, for instance, or they just may need more more work or so. But then you have at least identified those, and they will be many, many fewer so-called obstacles than what people first might have thought. With those words of encouragement to the prime ministers, leaders of the government, uh, uh, what you just said. Uh, we would like also to conclude this podcast dedicated to legal obstacles of e-governance that really don't exist. And my guest today was Katrin Neumann-Metcalf, a senior expert of legal framework at the Estonian e-governance academy. And my name is Linnar Wik from e-governance academy. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by e-governance academy. Tune in on next Wednesday.